Susan and I last week were able to watch the service online and we're so excited about having Jasmine uh, be a caseworker with 100 families for us. And I thought that uh, Dana and, or Dana and uh, Courtney did a great job of explaining what it is. But I wanted to just bring a little clarity and, and connect the dots because it's really amazing how this is coming to our lap and, and how this just integrates into what we're doing uh, as a church. It was back in 2015 when the then governor, Asa Hutchinson, called a, a, all the non, some nonprofits uh, into Little Rock to talk about what they could do, particularly with two areas. Uh, one was incarcerations, how they could reduce the rate of incarcerations in Arkansas because it was at an all-time high. And the second one was how they could reduce the need for foster care. And out of that then became, the, the initiative that came out of that was Restore Hope Arkansas. And so out of that Restore Hope Arkansas then, it, it basically is, is an agency that tries to pull together community leaders and government agencies to help people as much as you can in the local community. And it really is bringing them all under one roof, which has been an amazing thing. And so underneath that umbrella then of Restore Hope Arkansas, there are five different kind of agencies, if you will. There is the re-entry, there's House America, there's Second Chance Education, there's Every Child Arkansas, which is really a foster care initiative to really kind of bring it in more privatized foster care, uh, to bring them all uniquely into a, um, and bring them all together. Florida has already done that. They have completely privatized foster care. And so they want to see how that can happen here and how the church can be a, a great local part of that. And so uh, is Shane and, and Dana here? Or Dana? I keep saying Dana, but Dana. Are they here? Okay. They are the ones that if you have any questions, they have, they're unbelievable in their knowledge of, of what's going on and how they can, and how this is kind of integrated. But then obviously the last one is, is 100 families. And 100 families, as they described last week, was trying to take families from crisis to career trying to help a family kind of get out of, of the cycle that they're in that may have been generations. Uh, I, I'd put it this way to maybe kind of give a context to it. For so long, you know, Susan and I would go off and we would speak at marriage conferences and we would, you know, help marriages in different places, but I would come back and then I would just be overwhelmed by the amount of things that were going on in our, in our own place, in our own thing. And I remember sitting down with Tyler and going, Tyler, there's got to be something that we can do to not just be band-aids, to not just put out fires in marriages, but really be preventative. How can we help be preventative? And he goes, well, hey, I know there's something, this, this re-engage thing, and we'll get that. And it's just been amazing how God has brought leaders uh, that have been, had experience with re-engage and brought them in and raised up lay people to just bring. So now we're doing a great job, I think, and it's a great ministry that's going on about helping marriages uh, thrive in, in what God wants them to do. So that's under our umbrella of fellowship, if you will. In the same way, you know, through the last 14 years, I've had so many people that have knocked on the door of the church as we've gone on in different forms of crisis. And I can remember just so many times I would say, I, I, I just get tired of playing God in people's lives. And I'm like, there's got to be something that can bring this together where we can be preventative and we can really help people get out of the cycle that they're in as opposed to just putting band-aids on it. Like, I need this help. Okay, here you go. I need this help. Here you go. What can we do to really help people climb out of that crisis, you know, into careers and to be able to help them flourish maybe where they haven't ever had in a generation? And so that's what 100 Families is doing. 
And so to have a caseworker at our own church is, is incredible on this. And so it's not the only thing we do. And this whole thing is funded by a TANF grant. It's a state grant, not a federal. It's a state that came out of Restore Hope. TANF is a, is a temporary, uh, need, temporary aid. That was the word I couldn't get. Temporary aid for needy families. And it's basically a state grant that's, that is really coordinated through the Department of Workforce Services. And so that's how it's being funded. And so then for us, it's not the only thing we do, but under the umbrella of fellowship, our local outreach, a big part of that is going to be 100 families, as well as the other things that we do with, co- with our college ministry and with our student ministry and with our children's ministry and all the things that we do here at Fellowship, this would be one of them, but this is a one strategic way to be able to help us maximize what we can do in the community. I just wanted to kind of connect the dots there so that we could understand where this has come from. And so it is at a state-level thing, which I think is really exciting. One thing I would think in my 37 years of ministry if it's taught me anything, is that life is messy. The church is messy. Which is why I think it's really good that we go through this series that we've just, we're going into now from 1 Corinthians because it was a mess. It was a mess. And this is why we've called this, this series basically Imperfect Church, Perfect Gospel. Imperfect church, perfect gospel. Paul planted this church on his second missionary journey, and you can read all about it in Acts 18, 1 through 17. It kind of gives a list of what went on. But Paul basically went to Corinth, and he was going up from Athens to Corinth, going along. It was kind of a rich area. He was first, his first plan, which he did in a lot of places, is he was going to go to the synagogue because that was where the Jews were. And he knew that if he could connect the dots of who the Messiah was, that maybe they would come to Christ. And so he first go to the synagogue, but he was not well received there. In fact, the words that are used in Acts 18, one of the words is that they actually were abusive to him. And it must have been bad, because in Acts 18, Paul says this, and it comes across with some fire to it. He says, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. So Paul leaves the synagogue. He's going out amongst the Gentiles now. And, and this is a, an eclectic group. This is a group that's all over the map. Corinth was like a... Stepping into Las Vegas, you know, I mean, it was just anything goes in Corinth. And so it was this place where, you know, these people are coming in from all these different places. And it wasn't an easy ministry. And so Paul was kind of getting discouraged. And he gets a dream at night from God. And he basically says, Paul, stay steady. Keep boldly proclaiming the gospel because I have people here who are ready to hear. And they just need to hear the gospel. So stay strong. So Paul stayed there for a year and a half ministering in this area, and he was seeing them come to Christ by the droves. They were getting rid of their empty lifestyle, the things that they were in, going, well, Christ is obviously the answer. I want Christ. And so this whole thing is beginning, is beginning to surface and beginning to come up. He was there for, three, for one and a half years. He leaves, and this 1 Corinthian letter, it is, it is supposed to be about three years later. So over that three-year period, a lot of things had then begun to come up and began to surface because why? The church is messy. Life is messy. 
And so all of these things were going on. So I want to bring the text. Today we're going to just talk about verses 1 through 9 as we go through 1 Corinthians. This will take us to the summer. This is not going to be a verse-by-verse necessarily series, but a section-by-section series as we go through. But we will be in 1 Corinthians up until early June. Let's read the text. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And our brother Sothenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you are called into fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You kind of get the flavor of where he's going here. Nine times he mentions Jesus Christ in the nine verses. He's like, it may be a mess. But here's the center. We need to make sure we're anchored on Jesus Christ. So this morning, here's where I want to go. I want to talk about these three things. I want to talk about the imperfect church. If we could advance that forward for me. The imperfect church, the perfect gospel, and a faithful God. There we go. For some reason, it's not coming up on these screens. I don't know why that is, but don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. So let's, those are the three things we want to do. We want to do imperfect church, perfect gospel, faithful God. So let's start with just the imperfect church. Let me, let me ask you this. What is your most quotable movie? When you go to the movie, when you think about things that where you've quoted from for years, what, what's your most quotable movie? Something where you're just like, man, I, I've said that before. You know, I think of things like back in the, in the 90s, there was a, there was Jim Carrey was in a movie called Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, what, what's the chance of a girl like me and a guy like you getting together? And she says, one in a million. So he says, so you're saying there's a chance, right? And how many of you at certain times in your life have just been, you know, the odds are against you and you're basically, so what you're telling me is there's a chance, Right? There was another one back in that day, A Few Good Men. Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise, basically says, you can't handle the truth. For those of you who remember that one, there's been different times where you just can't handle the truth. My favorite, now, uh, that I can quote out of a movie is, this is not redemptive, okay? <laughs> so this is not saying that you should go out and watch this movie. Because you ever watch a movie and you go back later and you go, wow, I watched that thing? Better to go get this on YouTube, because some of the quotes are, are classic. Caddyshack. <laughs> Who can't quote from Caddyshack, right? Here you have, <laughs> yeah, Bill Murray. Bill Murray on this one, I, I, and I've read different things on it. He went off script so much in Caddyshack and basically just did his own thing and, and, and went for it. And, and it basically, no cuts, they just filmed it. And he's obviously a greenskeeper and... And his big job is to get rid of the gopher that's just terrorizing, you know, the, the country club. And he's like, hello, Mr. Gopher. This is not a plastic explosive or anything. 
And now I may or may not, when I try to get the moles out of my backyard, I may go, hello, Mr. Mole. This is not a steel trap to get rid of your existence or anything. You know, probably the classic on that is when he's teeing off on flowers at the country club. And, he, and if you have, this, this is just a, the classic part. He's got this long sickle, you know, and he's just, he's just teeing off on him. And he's going, out of nowhere, the Cinderella story comes into the last hole. He's in, he's in, he's in the last hole of Augusta. He looks, like, he looks like he's got about 455 yards. And he says, he pulls out a two iron, you know, and he goes, well, well he, he hits it. And he goes, whoosh. Oh, you got a hold of that one. He said, the normally reserved Augusta crowd is on their feet. Anyway, I could go on. It's really not a redeeming movie, okay? But there's just some parts of it that are just incredibly good. But there is one. Now, I am going to get back to 1 Corinthians here, okay? (laughs) Just just, just stay with me. There, there is one, and, and this comes from, a, this is another classic, and, and it's, this, this one is one you could watch. Okay, Sandlot. All about the little guys on the baseball team, and there's one line in Sandlot. In fact, I'm not going to tell you that one. I'm just watch it. Here it is. Hey, you want a s'more? S'more what? No, 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 you want a s'more. I haven't had anything yet, so how can I have some more of nothing? You're killing me, Smalls. Okay. How many of you have said that sometime in your life? You're killing me, Smalls. You know, right? That's when it comes out. Now, when Paul wrote to to the Corinthian church, it was a mess. Over the last three years, there had things that that had gone on, and and, and really the line between the church and the world was diminishing, and, and Paul knew that. But he writes it, and when he writes this letter to them, it's a gracious letter. It's a firm letter. He, he identifies the things that are going on. He brings the gospel into it. It's firm, but it's gracious. You know, if I would have wrote that, it would have been, Doug called to be a pastor to the church of Corinth. You're killing me, Smalls. I mean, th- this thing, what are you guys doing? How in the world are you going down this road? How could this be there? And there were all kind of manifestations of what was happening within the church. But you could really narrow them down to two core things at the heart. The one was a recurring arrogance combined with spiritual immaturity. That's not a good combination. Reoccurring arrogance with spiritual maturity. And what basically that was doing was that was blurring the lines in the church. The boundaries between them and the world were disappearing. And it was being manifested in certain areas, which we'll get to. But Paul, he would identify it, and then he would apply the gospel to it. Here's one area, and here's what they were. One was divisions. You know, there were different people that were coming in when Paul wasn't there. There was Paul, there was Peter, there was Apollos, there was different ones. And each one of them had different gifts and different ways that they would go. But there was groupies coming around each one. And some people said, I like Paul. Some people said, I like Peter. Some people said, I like Apollos. And so they're they're kind of grouping around each one of their ones. And there's becoming divisions in the church. Now, Peter and Paul and Apollos, neither one of them would want that. They would say, look, it's all about Christ. He's the center but not so for them. They, they were starting to have divisions. And Paul applied the gospel to it. It's, we can have that today. Sexual promiscuity was all over the place. 
There was no sexual integrity within the church. We'll read that there were some, there was one man who was sleeping with his stepmother. There were many who were going up to the temple of Epaphroditus, which was up on top of a hill that overlooked everything and had a thousand prostitutes at one point that worked there. And the church, they would just go up and they would partake in that. And what was worse is that the church was saying, it's okay for us to do that because we're free in Christ. Aren't we? We're free in Christ, so that isn't going to really matter, does it? We can be as part of the world. And so that thing was going on. There was over food, there was food fights, not literally food fights, like we're throwing food, but there was over food sacrificed to idols, and can we eat it or can we not? How far does this freedom in Christ go? There was parts of worship. There was division over worship. And so there was a lot of really big spiritual things that were happening in Corinth. I mean, the spirit was moving. And he was changing lives, and he was manifesting himself in some dramatic ways. And what was happening is, is in the church, it was becoming chaotic. So chaotic that if a a non-believer came into the church, they would be like, you're freaking me out. I have no idea what you're saying. I have no idea what's going on. And I'm not even sure I want anything about this. And Paul says, look, the spirit moves in mighty ways, but the spirit is always organized. Just as he has organized everything, so he organizes it in the church, and we can't just let this go chaotic. There has to be a way here that we can do this. And then the resurrection, there were some people who were saying, man, there's no resurrection. Resurrection doesn't really matter. And Paul's like, you got to be kidding me. You're killing me, Smalls. I mean, you, you take out the resurrection, and you're still in your sins. You, you try to build a gospel uh, around with no resurrection, then what are we doing? And so Paul brings that in. And it was, it was a mess, but Paul did not give up in the church. He spoke directly into it, which I think shows us this, that God's plan to make his grace known throughout the world was not through perfect people who lived in perfect harmony, but sinful people who were clinging to Jesus as their only hope. God never intended the church to be this thing where you're just like, whoa, man, they're so perfect and they just get along perfect and everything. He goes, no, they're imperfect people who are are pursuing a perfect Savior and it's bringing them into alignment. That is what he wanted. So this morning, are you struggling with a particular sin? Is there something that has been haunting you for some time? Maybe something that has been in your closet. We're, we say welcome. We're here. We're all here. Imperfectly here. And we're not here to justify the sin, but we're here to cling to the one who can give us freedom from its grasp. And that is the essence of what the church is. If you've heard it, if you've, you've, maybe you've heard this. If you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. <laughs> and that's the essence of what it is. And I am so thankful that Jesus loves us in our mess, but he loves us too much to leave us there. He loves us in our mess, but he loves us too much just to leave us there. And that's what we find in Corinth. 
So not only do we have an imperfect church, but we have this perfect gospel. And what Paul does is he, is he goes through the letter as he strategically and succinctly summarizes different central themes of the church that are so important. For instance, and, and these are things that can be forgotten. And the first one would just be the cross. In 123, he says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. So in other words, if you don't want to be a fool to the Gentile or you don't want to make the Jews stumble and you want to stay in your good graces, well then just get rid of the cross. And some churches do that. And so what happens with that is it just becomes a a, a club to try to make you a morally better person. He says, no, the the cross is a stumbling block. And and if, if if we lose the cross, we've missed the point. There's grace. Grace is huge in this. This is interesting. In 4.7 says, what do you have that you didn't receive? Answer would be nothing. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though if you did not? I mean, that's the essence of grace, isn't it? It's getting something we don't deserve. We have gifts. We have abilities. We have different things. Who gave them to you? God did. And we've said this before. Look, you, you, you don't own your gift. You can hone it, but you don't own it. You can make it better. You can make it more skilled, but it's not, you're not the one that owns it. God is the one who's given it to you. By his grace, he has manifested himself and given us gifts and things that we can do to edify the church and to glorify him. There's one God. That's a huge one, because in Corinth, there were temples all over the place, and people worshiping different things. He says, yet for us, there's one God, the Father, from whom all things came and whom we live. There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. How about mission? Mission is, is important here. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. We just talked about this as a staff team this week, about what our purpose in life is, that it is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And the response of that then would be, and that we would be able to tell others about him. That we would be able to articulate that to others, to be on mission. There's love. Love is the central part of it. 13.13, the great, the great love chapter in 1 Corinthians. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The centrality of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was raised from the dead, and the third day according to the scriptures. The centrality of the gospel in all of this. And obviously hope. The hope, the ultimate hope that we have, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so as Paul weaves his way through there, he takes each one of these things and he doesn't lose his his grip on the gospel, but he graciously tells them, look, this should not be so. The reason is, is because of this. And he brings them to the gospel. And so as we go through and we look at the issues of the church and we we enter into the mess, in in the mess of the culture, the mess of the church, you bring graciously these truths in and these truths transform. And these truths begin to anchor us. 
Because in a culture that is continually changing, in a culture that is continually to draw itself away from the scriptures, in a culture that's continuing to draw itself away from the church, and the church is becoming more irrelevant, more than ever before, we need to know how we are grounded in the gospel and how that gospel applies to curtain to, to certain situations within our culture. Do we not? That is what we need. And so we have an imperfect church. Takes the pressure off, really. A perfect gospel. Which then comes to a faithful God. It's really interesting in this first part that Paul, right off the bat, says something. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What I find really interesting here is that Paul is, is, he's thankful for the church, but not because the church is, is blameless in its application of the truth. How he's thankful is, is because of his confidence in the one who called them. He is thankful for the Corinthian church, even in their midst, because he knows the one who's called them. And he says, and I know he'll be faithful. I know he'll be faithful to you as you go through. He'll he'll sustain you. It means to confirm, to establish, to guarantee. Why? Because he's faithful to those he's called with his son. Which, which brings, I think, up to, uh, this truly is a treasure for the church. If you understand this, this takes the pressure off. Because I don't know about you, maybe you came from a background where you felt like you had to perform. And you had to go, boy, to really to make God love me, i got to perform. And i got to perform today. Today I feel pretty good about my salvation. Today I don't. Today I do. Today I don't. And i got to perform. i gotta, I got to make sure that I do the things that make sure that God loves me. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure, but it's antithetical to the gospel. Because that's not the way the gospel runs at all. And what this says is, I think this brings up two big questions. Does the perseverance of our faith, meaning being faithful to the end, solely rely on our ability or resolve? Is it up to us? Or does the perseverance of our faith rest on the work of God to keep us trusting? So that's a big question, isn't it? I mean, that, your answer to that question will, will really either make you want to perform or it'll put you at rest. Now, I, I don't know in this area, you know, what, what would be the more predominant, but I would say, if you're going to ask me that, I go with the latter. Here's why. Just hear me out on this. I do not think that Doug Grimes has the faith or the ability to stay firm until the end apart from Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. I need the power of the Holy Spirit and all that he does in me to stay faithful to the end. I cannot do it in and of myself. I know that. I tried it for a while. Didn't work out too good. But I know that. And so it's completely relied upon him and what he does and, and how he does that in our life. 
But there's a few scriptures that I think that, that really back this up for me, and I, and I will give these to you. Did our computer just go out again? Okay, patience while it, um, we get on that. It gets hot and it quits for some reason. First one, that First Thessalonians 5 says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that. Be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. See what that's saying? Paul, Paul there, when he writes to the third church of Thessalonica, he's not going. So guys, come on. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just do this. You can do this. No, he says, I know the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. If he called you to be with his son, he will empower you and strengthen you to stay firmer to the end. In Jude, says this, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Who's doing the keeping? God is. He says, if I've called you into a relationship with me and my son, I will work in your life and I will make sure that you stay firm until the end. Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So what Paul is writing here, this to the Corinthian church, he's not saying this is not a justification for sin. This just takes the pressure off. This is why he said, I can rejoice even in the midst of the mess. Even though right now there may be some compromises going on, I trust God's work in your life who has called you, that he will come along and he will orchestrate things in such a way that you will come back to him. Which takes the pressure off us and puts it squarely on his shoulders, and his shoulders are big enough to take care of it. Which is why, then, we don't have to come to church and feel like we got it all together. Whew, man, I'm doing good today. And everybody out there has got to come and they got to do good. If you want to be in the church, you got to be really good. You can't ever mess up. You can't ever have a problem. You can't ever have this. It, just, it takes the pressure off. And if you've been in that environment, you know how oppressive that can be. And how the grace of God goes out the window. God does not want us to, I mean, he is so confident in the mess because God will truly finish it. And he doesn't want us to be like, I'm saved today, I'm not tomorrow. I'm saved today, I'm not tomorrow. He, he wants us to know. You know, I've heard some people use this term and they, they call it once saved, always saved. And you'll never find that in the scriptures, but I think I get the point on it. But I've heard it used many times almost as a justification for bad behavior, which has never meant what it was supposed to be. You know, it's not like, a, you know, they'll say something like, well, yeah, I'm sinning in this area of my life, but hey, I, I, went, I walked down the aisle 20 years ago, so I know I'm saved, so I'm good. You'll never find that in the scripture. Your, your greatest justification that God is working in your life is what he's doing now, not, what he, not, not some decision you made 20 years ago. Because the spirit will continue to move. And he'll continue to show himself to you and will continue to produce his life in you. I've put it this way. Look, if you're riding the back of a pickup truck, now all, you know, all analogies break down, right? Okay, so this, is don't, this isn't uh, you know, scripture. Okay, this is just my way to reason to this. Okay, so if you're riding the back of a pickup truck, 
uh, and you're, either your tailgate's open or your tailgate's closed, right? Meaning that you believe somehow you can lose it or maybe you can't because the tailgate's closed. Well, the goal is to stay as close to the cab as you can and it's not going to be an issue. Okay? So whether, whether your tailgate's closed or your tailgate's open, just ride up against the cab. Okay, get to know the cab as best as you can, and you will, you will live securely in, in, in his great love for you. But it says it over and over, look, I will be faithful. If I have called you and you have genuinely come to know me, I will work and orchestrate in your life to make sure that you stay firm to the end. And nobody at the end will go, woo, look what I did. They're all going to go, thanks be to God, who has been faithful to me in Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit that now presents me acceptable and blameless before you. And there's none of it going, boo, like, boy, I, I, did a, <laughs> I really did a good job. You know, I really made it to the end. No, it, it'll all be squarely on his shoulders. You know, as we enter into this, let's take it home. The... Uh, as we go into this series, I'm excited because I think this is going to touch into some things in our culture that will really help us as, as, we, as we weave our way through and, and get the truth of the gospel applied to the circumstances of our culture and the things that you and I deal with. And, and I think that we will come out of this better because of it. And we'll have a clear understanding of what, call, what Paul was writing to when he wrote to Corinth and how it applies to us. You know, I think that there's no better passage to set us up for the Lord's Supper, actually, than this one. Basically, come to me, and, and, and I will be faithful. And so this morning, I'm, I want to, I said I want to do this like we did it on, um, Christmas, on Christmas Eve. I, I thought this worked well, and, and we can do this. And, but we're going to have it this morning where we're going to take communion together. And you'll see that in front of each section, we have the communion table. And what I want you to do is, when I, when I release you here in a minute... The front row will come first, and you exit out your left, and then you come back in on the right, and then the second row, just follow them right along. You can come up, you can take it, you can take it back to your seat, and you can take it when you want, but you'll, you'll take this section, you guys will go to this one, you all will come up to this one, and so it should just go pretty uniformly and, and pretty quickly. But what I think what's amazing here is that when Jesus was having this Last Supper with his disciples, it wasn't a uh, everything is harmonious time. They were arguing about who would be the greatest. Who's going to sit to your right? Who's going to sit to your left? I mean, at this, at this primary time, it's messy. And we see sin kind of even infiltrating it there. And Jesus in that moment says, this is one thing that's going to anchor you. Remember this. This is my body that has been broken for you. As often as you do this and you eat of this, remember me. I'm the central figure here, not you. This is my blood. This, this will represent the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink of this, remember my blood that has been shed for you. That will anchor you. That will bring you in. Because what is it? It's me who's been faithful. It's me who's been working in your life. So it brings us back. And, and all of us have this tendency to elevate ourselves and to lower God. And what can, when we come to this table, what it does is it comes back and goes, God, I lay myself out. It's all you. So this morning as you come, first row, which there's never buddy in the first row here. 
So second row here. Exit out your left, come back in on your right, just grab it and go around. You guys can do it on this one. Let's come to the table this morning. You know, we can thank God that he is such a faithful worker in our life. You know, I just, I was over, just over there a minute ago, as we were just singing, teach me to abide. I was just like, in Holy Spirit, out all pressure that I feel to perform. In Holy Spirit, out whatever sin is entangling me now. God, may your power be at work in our lives to continue to set us free from the things that so easily entangle us. Thank you that you are faithful to the end. And man, do we look forward to seeing you face to face, understanding all that you've prepared for us for the ultimate hope of eternity with you, which is going to be far greater than anything that our small minds can conjure up. Thank you for that. Help us to rest in that as we go about this week. In Jesus' name, amen. You know what to do? Go love first. We love because you first loved us. If you would like prayer, we'll have some elders and their wives up here to pray with you. Have a great week.